Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. During the Second World War, there was a Chinese diplomat based in Berlin who, despite orders to the contrary, would issue visas to thousands of Jewish people and help them escape Nazi Germany. Wang Tifu was born in 1911 and early on showed an ability for foreign languages. He was forced to work for the Japanese puppet government in Manzuguo or Manchuria in northern China, the start of a life that saw him spend 30 years in prison. This week, I welcome back Mark O'Neill, the author of Israel and China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi, to tell me about the life of Wang Tifu. Wang Tifu was a Chinese who was born in Jilin province in 1911. And the reason we're talking about him today is that during World War II, he was working in the Manzuguo Embassy in Berlin, and he gave visas to 12,000 Jewish people, which enabled them to escape the Holocaust. So he had a really remarkable life. The heroic part was when he was in Germany, but after the war, it was a very tragic life for him. He was in uh, labor camps in the Soviet Union for about 10 years. And then in China, he was in exile. He was in a rural village for about 20 years. So he paid an extremely heavy price for his service for the Manzuguo government. So let's start with his early life. As I say, he was born in June 1911 in Jilin province in northeast China. His family was quite well off. His father was a businessman. And he went to a private school at the age of seven. And he was a very talented student, especially in languages. And when he was 11, he went to a middle school in Harbin. Now, as you know, at that time, Harbin had a very special status in China. It was geographically part of China, but it was administered by Russians. It was a majority Russian city. It was extremely prosperous. It had no duty, paid on goods. It was like Shanghai. For me, Harbin is always these days about the ice festival. Yes, well, that's a, a later arrival. But at that time, because of the China Eastern Railway, which was built by the Russians from Chita in Siberia to Vladivostok, it was a, a majority Russian city with a large Jewish population. So Mr. Wang enters middle school there, uh, and then he, he joins the uh, political and law university of Harbin. So he is being educated in this very international atmosphere. He knew Jewish people either in the faculty in, in the university or in the city of Harbin. And he studies Russian, which is the main language there. He studies German, and he also studies some Japanese. So in 1931, the Japanese military captures Manchuria, the huge area of Manchuria. And Harbin had no wall, so it was not easy to defend. So the Japanese captured Harbin very easily. And Mr. Wang was a patriotic student, like most of the people in his university. And they protested against this, and he was arrested and sent to prison. Now, when he was in prison, the Japanese interrogators found out that he was very talented at foreign languages. And they were building this new state, Manzuguo, and this needed to have a foreign ministry. And there was a severe shortage of talent in Manchuria, especially for this. 
So Manchurian government is Manzu Guo. Yeah, it means the same? Or? Yeah, it means the, the country of the Manzu. So it's called Manzhou Guo. And they invited Puyi, the last emperor, to become the emperor of, of Manzhou Guo. But as we know, this was only a puppet state. All the ministers were, were Chinese, but they all had Japanese advisors. So actually, it was the Japanese government. But since they were building a new country, they need to have all the parts of a new country. And one of it, of course, is to have a foreign ministry. So what happened to Mr. Wang in prison is that he's in prison. His family are also in prison. And the Japanese say, you have two choices. You cooperate with us, join our foreign ministry. You will have a very good job for life, and we release your parents. Or if you don't cooperate, you will stay in prison and your family will stay in prison. So Mr. Wang made the choice, which I, I dare to say most of us would have made, which is, well, what, what use is it, uh, is it for me to remain in prison and for my family to remain in prison? So I will, I, I will agree. So he joins the foreign ministry. So his first job is in 1932 in Chita. Chita is in Siberia. It's just over the border in Russia because he speaks Russian. So he's working there in the consulate of the Manchukuo government in Chita. Now, Germany, as you know, is an ally of, of Japan. So they set up an embassy in Changchun, the capital of Manzhuo. And so where's that? It's sort of northern China. Yes, it's now there. the capital of Jilin. But its name then was Xinjing, which means new capital. Beijing is northern capital. Nanjing is southern capital. Xinjing is new capital. So the Germans set up their embassy in uh, Changchun, and then Manso Guo sets up an embassy in Berlin. And because of the fact that he can speak German, he is chosen to work in their embassy in Berlin. So 1938, he takes a, a boat from Osaka, he goes to Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bombay, Marseille, Lisbon, London, and finally, he ends up in the embassy in Berlin. Now, Hitler has been in power since 1933. So the anti-Jewish policies are well entrenched and going on. So he arrives in Berlin. He can see every day on the street attacks on Jewish people, beatings up of Jewish people, ransacking of Jewish properties. And also, shops. are Jews required at that time to have to wear the Star of David or to actually identify themselves as being Jewish when they're on the street? Yes, yes. So, in March 1939, Mr. Wang and his colleagues at the embassy are sent to the, the new chancellery which Albert Speer has built for Hitler. And he was the architect? Yes. Now, I'm sure you've seen photographs of this building. It took one year to build. It cost 90 million Reichmarks, which is a billion dollars in today's money. It was built by 4,000 workers who worked around the clock for one year. And this was going to be Hitler's statement of his himself and the new Reich. So it was an enormous building. It contained all the ministries of the government, and it was in this place where Mr. Wang and his superior would present their credentials to Hitler. So he describes visiting this building. So what, Mr. Wang writes a diary? Or? Well, everything I'm telling you comes from a book which was published after his death by a Chinese journalist who did lengthy interviews with Mr. Wang just before he died. 
So this book appeared three months after Mr. Wang died. So Mr. Wang Tifu arrives with his colleagues at the Reich Transferring. And this building is built to intimidate all, make every visitor full of awe, because it's so large. So he has to walk along this gallery, which is 140 meters long. It's longer than the gallery in Versailles, of course it had to be. And Hitler's room is 400 square meters with a marble table desk. And it was on top of this table where Hitler would plan his military campaigns with the leaders of the Wehrmacht. So then there was this enormous reception hall. So Mr. Wang and his colleagues arrive there and they wait for 30 minutes. And finally Hitler comes in and Hitler makes a speech. And in his speech Hitler says, I've always wanted to make relations with Manso Guo. You are very important because of your production of commodities, especially soybean. Soybeans are essential commodity. And that was, they were grown in Manchuria. Yeah, Manchuria is one of the world's biggest producers of soybean. And Hitler also says there was a very famous man in history called Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan's army reached Europe, reached Hungary. How could an Asian ruler reach to Europe? So if an Asian ruler can reach Europe, how can a European ruler not reach Asia? So he, he gives a speech in this way. So Mr. Wang is there and he's listening to the speech and then he's introduced to Hitler. Now, as you know, Hitler is small. Mr. Wang is very tall. So he has to look down <laughs> on Adolf Hitler and he looks him in the eye and he says, the blue eyes were warm and savage. Do you know, it must have been, you know, he's quite a young man at this stage and he's already been threatened by the Japanese. Your parents will be imprisoned if you don't do what we want to do. You're moving from, uh, I mean, I don't know how one would have classed the Japanese, well, imperial at that stage. He's now moving to a, a fascist state. He's in Berlin and he's meeting Adolf Hitler. What a time to be living. I think you're completely right. I mean, absolutely overwhelming experience. And they get a tour of the chancellery, and this is, of course, to impress them. And the chancellery has three floors below ground, including the bunker, where in uh, April 1945, Adolf Hitler and his wife were to kill themselves. So he comes back to the embassy, but the embassy of Manchukuo is not very busy because, of course, the real power is Japan. So the Japanese embassy is very busy. So he's rather underemployed, and it's a chance for him to explore the city, see what's going on, see the maltreatment of Jews, see the intense militarization, attend military parades, read the newspapers, listen to the, the German radio, attend some of these enormous rallies. So he very soon has a very clear grasp of what is going on. So what happens is that in early 1939, his government is told to issue visas to Jews because the German policy at that moment is to expel them. So they have to have somewhere to go. So between January and August 1939, he gives out 7,000 visas. So these are good visas. They enable the Jewish people to leave. So actually, before the outbreak of war, before the invasion of Poland, Germany's policy is just to get rid 
of German Jewish citizens and move them elsewhere. It's not actually to put them in concentration camps. Yeah, well, not only Germany, but all the areas in Europe which Germany occupied. So in the course of this, of course, he gets to meet and gets to know the Jewish community in, in Berlin. But then Germany invades Poland. The invasion is very successful, it's very quick, and there's a policy change. Because, as you know, Poland has more Jews in it than any other country in Europe. There are three million of them. And the Germans decide to take another route. We're now speaking about September, October 1939. The policy changes, and he's ordered to stop issuing visas. But he doesn't wish to. So this is where his heroism begins. So he and his German secretary, they work together. She goes to the Jewish Association in Berlin... She collects the passports from people, she brings them to the embassy, he stamps them, and then she takes them back and hands them out to the people. So this goes on from October 39 till the spring of 1940. And during this period, he issues 5,000 visas. So then he is ordered by his government to stop issuing visas, so he stops. Because they're worried about their relations with Germany? Well, yeah, I mean, this Manchu Guo or Japan is always very conscious of their relations with the Nazis. So they don't want to do anything which would upset their, their partner. So once he gets the order from his government in Mandrukwa to stop issuing, then he, he stops. Then in 1941, Mr. Wang is moved to Denmark, then Romania and Bulgaria. So he spends the next three years in these countries. And then in 1944... He's sent back to Mansogwa, and he spends the last year there. Uh, he works advising the, the cabinet of the Manchukuo government. And in August of 1945, the Soviet army invades Manchuria, and within a week, it conquers all of it. So he's arrested along with thousands of other members of the Manchukuo government and their armed forces also. So more than 400,000 of these people are then taken back to the Soviet Union. And he's put on trial and he's sentenced to 22 years of hard labor. So he does about 10 years. So That's extraordinary. So he's gone from being under the Japanese occupation in Harbin. He was told then to you know, work for the Japanese-controlled Manchurian government or have his family in prison. He then goes to Europe, he's come back, another country has taken over that area, and he's now... Um, so when he went on trial, what would that have been for working for the Japanese government? Yes, yes. But we may well say, well, what crimes did he commit? Because he was a diplomat, he was not involved in combat, uh, he didn't kill anyone. I mean, his role in Berlin was actually quite the opposite. He was helping the victims of the Nazis. But none of this came out in the trial. The Soviets are not interested. So when you say that he did hard labour in... Now, I mean, you've, you've written previously about the, the Chinese Labour Corps in Russia and, and building the railway up to Minsk, and that was under atrocious conditions. So if he was doing hard labour, that would have been in, in Siberia? Would that have been salt mines? No, it was in Siberia, in central Russia, and then in what is now Kazakhstan, Karaganda. So he stays for a total of 10 years. And then in 1956, he comes back to Harbin, and he hopes that his nightmare is over. 
So he's back in Harbin and he starts to have a normal life again. But unfortunately, in the early 60s, his past comes back to haunt him. And as you know, in the PRC, the Manchukuo regime is considered a puppet of Japan. So under, in, now in communist China. Yes. So therefore, the, everybody who worked for them is suspect as being a Japanese puppet. So even though he has purged already his sentence in the Soviet Union, he's punished again. But it's interesting also because they're going back 20, 25 years. Well, yes, and as, as I say, he was not in the armed forces. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't inform on Chinese and have them taken away and, uh, you know, tortured. You know, his, his service for the Manchurian government was in these embassies abroad. Uh, and as we've seen, the Manchurian embassies abroad were very unimportant. They didn't play a major role in anything. So... He spends now about 20 years, I mean, not in prison, but in rural exile. So he's sent to a village. So he lives in the village. So this is a form of re-education? Yes. I mean, as you know, thousands of Chinese people, especially intellectual city people, were sent to rural areas in this time because Mao believed that their thinking was not correct. They didn't understand China's reality. They lived comfortably in the cities. They had to live with the farmers in order to understand the reality of China. But for him, it was much worse because he was branded as a collaborator with the Japanese, someone who was working for the Manchukuo government. And so he spends 20 years uh, in, in a village. And his wife is with him, but his children remain in Harbin because, of course, the schools are much better in Harbin. So he's, he's also separated from his children during this time. They had four children, and before the invasion of Poland, he arranged for his wife and children to come back. So they took a boat from Hamburg back to, brought them back to Harbin. So they survived the war safely. But it meant that he spent very little time with his own children because of his long periods of imprisonment and then in, in, in the rural areas. Now, in your book, From the Tang Dynasty to the Silicon Valley, you actually, you cover, you know, where, where you're talking about the, you know, you're talking about the relationship between Jewish communities and China going right back to the Tang Dynasty. But you also cover Mr. Wang Tifu and his work in getting these visas out from Germany. So how did you come across him? Well, um, we have a chapter we call The Diplomats Who Save the Jews. So in this chapter, we describe Mr. He Fengshan, who is the ROC uh, consul in Vienna. Then also Mr. Chiuni Sugihara, who is the consul of Japan in Kaunas. These two men gave many visas to Jews, and they are recognized in, in Jerusalem, uh, in the righteous among the nations, as diplomats who saved the lives of many Jews in the war at the risk of life to themselves because they were disobeying their governments. But Mr. Wang Tifu's name does not appear there. So I found out about Mr. Wang from doing my research, and I found this excellent book that he dictated to this Chinese journalist. And then I started to ask scholars in China why his work hadn't been recognized. And the answer was that because he was what we call a bad person, there was no time or possibility to do the research that is needed before you can join the Righteous Among the Nations because the Israeli government will only put you there after doing meticulous research. Who did you save? How many people did you save? What were their names? Where are they? We need testaments from the people you saved. What are the documents? 
They need all of that before evaluating whether you were a good person who saved lots of Jews. But in the case of Mr. Wang, because he was, as I say, in prison, then in these camps, and then when he returned to Harbin, finally, he had a very low-key life. He didn't want to get into any trouble. So there was no way that Chinese or Israeli scholars could do any kind of meaningful research. So I asked an eminent Israeli professor who lives in Harbin, I said, what about Mr. Wang? And he said, well, we can't say because this book appeared, Mr. Wang died, and the research hasn't been done. So he said, we cannot say definitively whether or not Mr. Wang saves how many people and what happened to them. But I said to myself, I'm writing a book here. I'm not the government of Israel having to make these very weighty historical judgments. And this is a person whose life is not well known. So that's why I decided to put Mr. Wang in my book. Well, I'm glad you do, because I think a man who... Then there would have been any number in China, I'm sure, over the years who've had to spend time, intellectuals, as you say, or people who'd worked for the wrong government previously, in essence, mm-hmm. who then were punished, often for decisions absolutely beyond themselves. So it's it's a tale of many people, but I'm glad you've discovered him in a way. Mr Wang Tifu is in Berlin. He's living in a certain era of the Manchurian government, then Japanese-controlled. So, in fact, through his life, my understanding of that history has also increased. But as you say, I'm also amazed at at how long he survives because it's an incredibly hard life. Yes, and the question arises as to why he took it upon himself to save the Jews. So he doesn't explain it very well in this book. But what he does tell us is that, as I mentioned before, he was very well informed. He knew everything was going on around him in Berlin. He listened to foreign radio. Yeah, I was going to say, as a polyglot, he was in a good position. Yes. He listened to Churchill's famous speech about, I can only promise you blood, sweat and tears. So he was one of the very few people who was in Nazi Germany but had an understanding of the global picture. And he decided that Japan and Germany were going to lose and Manchukuo would disappear. Now, he didn't dare to say this to anybody, but this is what his feeling was. And I think also he felt remorse at what he had done. Now he was working for the Japanese, and therefore, by extension, he was working for the, for the Germans. And Yeah, but what choice did he have? Well, he had no choice, but here, here he is in Berlin. He's in this situation. He can't escape, but what can he do? So by giving the visas to Jewish people, he's making a contribution that he is able to make in some way to pay back for his personal error in taking this position. Now, after he goes back to China, he very rarely speaks of the war. When we interviewed the daughter of Dr. He Shan, the RSC consul in Vienna, she said her father never spoke about the war, and her father wrote an autobiography of his life as a diplomat, And there were just 70 characters about giving the visas to the Jews. So even a person who did something which he himself regarded as heroic and everyone around him regarded as heroic, he he didn't speak of it. So you see, in Mr. Wang's case, there were even more reasons not to speak about it. So his wife probably didn't know, his children didn't know, his associates didn't know. know, He wanted just to put the war behind him. And, and try and get on with a normal life. So these are all reasons why we, we didn't find out. And remind me, when is he born? He's born in 1911. So you get through to the 60s, so he's now a man of 50 plus, and he's now 
before and during the Cultural Revolution, he's now going to have to spend 20 years in a rural village where he would have been doing what, agricultural work? Oh yes, I mean, this was the order of, of Mao because city people, intellectuals, were considered eggheads who didn't uh, understand manual labour. So indeed, he would have had to look after pigs, um, clean toilets, uh, till the fields. So that's what he would have been doing. And if you wanted to survive in those conditions, the best thing was to say nothing and to write nothing, just to be silent, to be very low-key, have the quietest life possible, and just hope that the nightmare would end and you could go back to your original place sometime. So by the time he's now returning to Harbin, how old would he have been? So he's in Harbin, it's in the 1980s. He returns to Harbin. He then goes to work for a research institute and he's a polyglot. So he becomes a teacher of foreign languages. So in his final years, he uh, taught a thousand students, Russian, German, Japanese. Now imagine if he'd been doing that, you know, since 1945. I mean, how many people he could have assisted, including ones who worked in the foreign ministry today. So amazingly, his health was good, his head was very clear, and the journalist who wrote this book I'm quoting from, she said it was amazing, this man in his late 80s and his 90s, he had this very very good recollection of his early life and he explained everything to her and they had long interview sessions which lasted for hours and when she completed the research then he passed away in 2001 he was aged 91 he died in July that year and then the book came out in October that year during her long conversations does she give any kind of is it virtually him uh, the way that the book is written that, that it's him giving an account of his life or does she actually comment on what type of person he was? Well, she said that for most of his time in China, he didn't want to speak about it because it's too dangerous. But at the end of his life, he realizes that if he doesn't say this, no one will know what he's done, and he will be seen as a person who serves the Manchukuo government. So he wants to have his version of history, his account, written down and published so that people will know about it. So she describes him in a very positive way, intelligent, very clear-headed, clear memory of what happened in the past. And, and she can't say this because she's writing a book in, in the mainland, but yes, a, a terrible sense of waste and injustice. That a man of his talents lost 30 years of his life to prison and exile in a rural area where his talents were completely wasted. Manchuria or Manchu Guo, is that still ever referred to in terms of you know, Chinese geography? Manchuria, this word is only used by foreigners. So actually I, I really shouldn't use it. It's a, it's a word that the foreigners used in the past to describe the three northeast provinces of China. The term Manchu Guo is the term used at the time to describe this new puppet country that the Japanese set up. But in the PRC media, the word is never used alone. They always add a character at the beginning, Wei, which means fake. So it's just to remind readers that yes, there was this entity, but it wasn't a real country. So it's, it still carries an extremely heavy negative sentiment. My thanks to Mark O'Neill, the author of Israel and China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi, talking there on the life of Wang Tifu. Next week, I head to the always welcoming Sikh temple in Wanchai, where members of the Sikh community 
share stories of their lives. After getting married, when my father's uh, job, he had to retire from the Hong Kong police, my father took my mother back to India, where I was born. And then when the UK government rehired them back as army, he brought me here. My mother came here after five years with the other brother and sisters. And so where did you grow up in Hong Kong? I grew up in the temple. I was living here. Really? I was living here. Can I ask how old you are? I'm now 60. Right. So you actually grew up in the temple? I grew up here. How come? In this temple area. (laughs) There was a double-story building here. So there was many people living here, many families. Those who came from Shanghai, when the communists kicked these Indian outs, they came here. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.